right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here in chapter nine, we looked at Jesus's power to forgive sins, which was actually an indirect way of him, pro him proclaiming to be God and the issues to the which that the Pharisees had with this. Remember, we said that they said in their own thinking, thinking within themselves, who can forgive sins but God? And so Jesus gave a demonstration of power to back up his word that indeed, if he can forget, if he can heal this paralytic, then it is also proof that what he said concerning himself, he can also forgive sins. Then we continued on into the call of Matthew. And then remember, Matthew was a publican, a tax collector, one who sat at the seat of the custom and the Jewish thought in that day, especially among the Pharisees, was that such a one that is a Jew who did the work for the Romans was not fit for the Messiah to eat and dine with. So what we saw was what? After Matthew was called by Jesus into permanent service, he gave a farewell party and he invited his friends who would quite naturally be other Pharisees and sinners or these women prostitutes. Again, the Pharisees had an issue with that and they spoke that Jesus, if indeed is the Messiah, he should not eat and drink with publicans, that is tax collectors and sinners. Jesus found out about this and he responded to them that men such as they are, that is the Pharisees who considered themselves to be whole, who considered themselves to be righteous, they had no need of Jesus for Jesus did not come to call them, but he came to call such ones as these publicans and sinners. He came to call them to repentance. And then we saw the continuation of Jesus's miracles in the healing of Jairus daughter, a ruler of the synagogue and how Jairus came to Jesus hurriedly because his daughter was at the very brink of death. But as they were trying to get to Jairus daughter through the thick of the crowd, they were hard. They were not, they were, it was difficult for them to move through that crowd. And even in that sense, all of a sudden, a particular woman who had an issue for 12 years touched the hem or touched Jesus robe, the seat seat, most that most likely. But they touched the hem of his garment and she was healed. And Jesus began to interrogate this particular situation. The woman finally came out, let Jesus know her condition and that she was healed to the which why she sought to touch him. And Jesus gave words of comfort to her saying, daughter, be a good cheer. Your faith has made you well. But then in the midst of all of that, someone came to the rule of the synagogue and told him no longer to trouble Jesus because the daughter had just died. Jesus strengthened the man's faith and told him simply to continue to believe. Arriving to the man's house, he saw all of this grief ceremony of mourning and flute playing and all of this. Jesus put these people out. He only allowed a small group of people to witness what, it, what, what was about to happen. That is, Jesus would awaken her from her sleep, which is a euphemism for death. He would call her spirit back into her body. So Jesus healed this young girl and he therefore commanded the parents to take care of her because after being sick unto death, the body itself would be in a sense, weakened, and therefore Jesus is simply saying, strengthen her once again. 
And so then after all of these things, uh, Jesus healed a mute man, a man who could not speak, who was also demon possessed. And remember, we call this one of the messianic messianic miracles. One of the, the messianic miracles was basically miracles to the which only the Messiah could do heal those who had leprosy, heal this particular man who was demon possessed, unable to speak. And also in the book of John, heal a man who is born blind. And so Jesus performed this miracle, shocked the people who were witnessing this. These people began to muse and to wonder whether or not indeed Jesus was the Messiah that he was claiming to be. And then we saw the attack of the Pharisees and we, we put in a lot of information on that how the Pharisees began to attack Jesus saying he was able to do miracles, cast out demons because Jesus himself was demon possessed. But nevertheless, Jesus looking at those pseudo shepherds, false shepherds, and also looking with compassion upon the great number of, of the people of Israel and seeing how these shepherds, these so-called shepherds, Pharisees and their religious leaders and their scribes, we're not even good shepherds whatsoever. And so Jesus began to mourn within himself and to speak to his disciples, saying how that the, the harvest, that is the people of Israel, was truly plentiful, but the laborers were so few and to pray to the God of harvest to send out laborers. And it was with this last mindset that the God of the harvest would send out laborers that we prepare to get into chapter 10, where Jesus began to choose out 12 men, 12 specific men, apostles to answer that call in particular. He prepares them to send them out into the harvest to represent Jesus as the Messiah and declare the upcoming kingdom. Okay. Now with that, let's get into chapter 10. Now chapter 10 is somewhat lengthy, but I think we'll be able to finish it in one video. So let's hope that we can 10 and one. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter and Andrew, his brother and James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Okay. So now we see all of a sudden, and all of this is directly related to what Jesus is saying, sending laborers out into the harvest. But you got to remember as Jesus proclaimed his messiahship in teaching and preaching, but also he authenticated, he backed it up. He gave evidence of his Messiahship by the works that he did, the miraculous works. This is why we call these works signs, healing of diseases, casting out devils and things of that nature. So these 12 men, he now calls to himself to, to prepare them to send them out. 
to represent him. So in order to represent him, to proclaim the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the Messiah and to proclaim this all over the cities of Israel, he has to give them the powers to do the things that he does. As Jesus has the power to authenticate his message, he gives his own disciples, these 12 powers to authenticate their message. And their message is the Messiah is here. Jesus is that Messiah. Okay. And so he gives them the power over what? Sickness and diseases of every kind and also to, to cast out demons. And then it gives you those names of those specific uh, disciples who we know later on these 12 would be called apostles to whom Jesus is going to send out in his name. And we're not going to go over that list. We just read out that list, but the list is given in groups of threes and that in a group of, of three. And that is Peter is the leader of one group. Philip is the leader of another group. And James is the leader of the third group. What is also interesting too, that I want to bring out is in these names of the apostles, take notice Matthew as Matthew Notice how Matthew is so humble. Matthew is saved now. And Matthew has already left the tax collector business, as we saw in chapter nine. But in his humility, he still refers to himself as tax collector. If that if there is one thing that I want that the scriptures teach, the Bible as a whole teaches concerning God's people is humility. And that is the one thing that we lack. The preachers lack humility. The people lack humility. We have so much pride and so much arrogance that we actually defame Jesus as if we have something that we have not been given and or if we know something that God did not reveal to us, whereby his scriptures or by the spirit of God, we seem to always think ourselves to be something. But remember what Paul said in the book of Galatians, for if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he has just deceived himself. We are nobody. And that would be a good principle for each and every one of us to get into our hearts, get that deep into your, for me, get into my heart. And I, I say this for myself every day and for you to get that in your heart, you are nothing. You are nobody, but it is Jesus and only in Christ Jesus, because he of his own will has sovereignly chose you. He has only elected you, not you yourself. So therefore we are nothing. So let us take how Matthew, how Paul looked at himself, how James, the brother of Jesus, when he wrote his own book, he didn't even think to call Jesus his brother. He called Jesus his Lord. He, uh, he understood he was nobody. Enough preaching there. Do that. And it will be good before the Lord. And it will be good in your own spirit. But anyway, Concerning Matthew, it is interesting, Matthew as a tax collector, and there is one who is called Simon the Zealot. 
Now you have to understand what it means when it calls him the zealot. The zealot were kind of like an offshoot of the branch of the Pharisees. The Pharisees concerning the Romans, the Pharisees passively resisted the Romans. The zealots actively resisted the Romans. So the zealots were what we, what we would call basically terrorists today. And they would commonly carry a dagger with them wherever they go. And at, and at an opportune moment, they would use it to stab a Roman. And it's hard to get away with that. But they would also stab what they would consider a collaborator. Now, who is a collaborator? A collaborator is such a one who worked for the Rome, for the Romans, a sympathizer with the Romans. And Matthew would fit the bill because remember, Matthew collected taxes for the Romans. So the zealots hated, they hated the tax collector, the Jewish tax collector. Interesting how Jesus chose Matthew, a tax collector, and even Simon, a zealot. And you can <laughs> imagine how Matthew might be uncomfortable sitting beside Simon. But anyway, nevertheless, these are the men that he chose and ultimately notice with Simon, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. As Jesus would later on say, have I not chosen all of you, you 12, and one of you is the devil. That is, when I chose you in the first place, Judas, I knew that you were a devil. You weren't saved then, you are not saved now. Judas did not backslide, but nevertheless, he was still a devil. And even here, a beautiful thing, and I don't want to get into it uh, with a lot of details, but notice here how even being unsaved, Jesus gave him powers over unclean spirit. And we can even see such things happening even in the Old Testament. Um, where we saw the first king of Israel prophesying. And notice, we know very clearly that he was not saved. That is Saul, as the spirit of God came upon Saul and Saul began to prophesy and the people began to muse and began to wonder, saying, is Saul one of the prophets too? As Saul prophet, as the spirit of God came over him in Saul's endeavor to kill David. OK, but nevertheless, this is simply shows God can use you and give and even give you supernatural powers to accomplish his will. And you ain't even saved enough of that. But these are the 12 men that Jesus is preparing to send out into Israel to represent him by giving them authority over demons and over all sickness and diseases. So now he prepares to commission them, these 12, to go out. Verse number five, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter in any of the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. 
Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for that city. Okay, now Jesus prepares his disciples at how they should go out on their journey with physical preparation, taking care of things that they need. And the bottom line is Jesus basically told them, do not take additional or extra things for your journey. So notice, let's start at verse number five. So he sends them out. And the first thing that he tells them is do not go in the way of the, of the Gentiles and the Samaritans. In other words, do not preach do not do these wonders, the powers that I've given you represent me. Do not proclaim me to the Gentiles and the Samaritans because it was not time yet. The gospel is first to be to the Jew and then to the Gentile, as Paul teaches us in the book of Romans. And so Jesus directed in this case that at this time in their ministry, it is only to go unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then he tells them, continue on in your preaching to proclaim the kingdom of God. That is simply to say, announce that the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messiah. He is the king and therefore give them the opportunity to receive Jesus as king and the opportunity to bring in that is Jesus by receiving him as king. They would he would bring in the kingdom for Israel. So proclaim the kingdom of God. And so demonstrate this message. Remember, show the authentication, show the evidence that what you are saying is true by doing what? healing the sick. Notice even he gave them power. Look at the extent of the powers. Raise the dead, just like Jesus himself did with Jairus' daughter. That is true power. Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Notice cleansing the lepers, not of their own power, but of the power that Jesus has delegated unto them. So you're doing this in his name. Remember messianic miracles. And then he says, cast out demons and do not be stingy with the exercise of these wonderful works that Jesus has given to them. Why? Jesus gave it to them freely. So therefore they should do these things freely to the people freely, openly, quickly, without hesitation, without any charge whatsoever. Then he tells them concerning preparing for themselves, because as Jesus is sending them out on a journey, 
The first thing you would do is if I'm going to be out on a preaching, traveling journey, I need to take provisions and take care of myself. Jesus tell them, do not provide for yourself in this journey. And notice we're going to get into that. So notice what he says. Do not acquire gold, silver, copper for your money bills. That is, do not take additional money for the journey. Don't take a couple of extra hundred dollars. Don't take three or four or five hundred dollars for your journey because you're going to be out there. But he is teaching them to learn to depend on God. He is teaching them to learn, have faith to depend on God, that God will supply their needs. But now notice something. Notice something even for you listeners to me. How is God going to provide for their needs? Let me just keep going. Watch this. I'm going to keep going. And then I'll answer that question uh, specifically. How will God provide for the preachers of the gospel's needs? Notice. Don't take bag for your journey, an extra bag. Don't take two inner coats, two tunics, inner garments. Don't take all of that or sandals, additional sandals and any additional staff. Notice for the worker is worthy of his support. Now notice what Jesus says for the one who is working. What is the working? the proclaiming of the gospel. What is his support? The support is all of those things. What? The gold or the silver. We would simply call it the money, the clothing, the inner tunics that we would call it, the sandals, shoes for his feet, provisions for his life. Who is to provide this support? The support is to be given by the people he is proclaiming to. And this deals with a lot of the stinginess that I often see in the hearts of so many people. People think that the gospel is free. I have never read where the gospel is free. Number one, the gospel calls Jesus his life. Now, no greater price can you pay than for your life. Then we see here Jesus directing. He is teaching his disciples that as you go out to preach and proclaim the gospels, those that you are proclaiming the gospel to, they are to provide for your needs. But we see this all the time. People want to receive the gospel. They want to hear the good news of the gospel. They want the teaching and instruction that come by the men that God chooses, but they never want to support. They never want to give to their needs. But the gospel, the point that Jesus is trying to make, even we find out in Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that Paul says, by principle, those who preach the gospel should have their living from the gospel. That is, people who receive from the messages of the preachers should bless them for their work in the gospel. Maybe some of you would hear that, but let me go on. How do I know? He continues on in their travels. When you go into a city or a village and he says, what you have already been preaching the gospel inquire who is worthy in that city. That is who has listened to your preaching. 
responded to your preaching, believed in your preaching, that is, that Jesus is the Messiah. And such a one, they who have listened, that you should know what, notice what it says, to inquire who is worthy and stay at his house until you leave that city. I'm almost wearing myself out at this point, but notice the pungent word that Jesus gave them. Do not, don't you feel bad. Go into that house. They are to provide for you in that house. They are to provide food for you in that house. Your needs in that house. Why? You're working for me, Jesus, and therefore you are worthy of this support from them in that house. And notice what he says. Look at the stay in that house until you leave. And in another place, he'll say, don't go from house to house. You are worthy. Do not feel that you are an inconvenience to these people. Why? As a proclaimer of the gospel, this is the highest service that a man could have. I don't, I don't care a joker works for IBM. Nothing that won't last. I don't care if you are CEO of a bank. That means nothing because that won't last. But when you do the highest service that a man can do in this world, it not only pertains to this life, but that service is rewarded even in the life to come. It is the highest service. So notice what Jesus says to his disciples. Never feel like you are an inconvenience to someone you work for me and the worker is worthy of all that is given unto him. You do not have to feel bad because people are supporting you. What does Jesus say? Stay in that house. If it's a week, stay there. Two weeks, stay there. And guess what they're doing? Providing for you. And this is the instruction and the commandments of Christ to his ministers. But now let me go on. So he says, and even when you enter to that house, give it your greeting. And that simply is the Jewish blessing to a household peace unto that house. And if that house is indeed worthy, let your peace remain your blessing of peace. If you find out that that house is not worthy, these people are not genuine believers. They are not truly supporters of Jesus as Messiah. Then remove your blessing from that house and whatever city where who don't ever receive you. If they don't hear you, if they don't receive your words as you leave that house, or even as you leave the city, if they don't receive you, which means they are rejecting me, because what are you proclaiming? Jesus is the Messiah. He says, I tell you what, shake the dust from your feet. In other words, count it as nothing. Don't worry about it and move on. And Jesus then gives a word and he says, in the day of judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah would fare better than that city. Now, what is it? Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis chapter 19, was destroyed by God because of their wickedness. Jesus said this city will, this city that the disciples have preached to will get even a worse judgment. The question becomes why? The answer is when greater light is given, more is expected. These people had the light 
of the Messiah that is being preached by the disciples of Jesus. They see the wonderful works that the Messiah, that the apostles are doing to prove indeed that Jesus is who they claim him to be. But still in all of these great abundance of witness that they have, they still reject the disciples and they reject Jesus. Therefore, they are worthy of an even greater judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Sodom and Gomorrah did not have these things. No one came into Sodom and Gomorrah in scripture witnessing of God. Okay. So now let's get to verse 16. The preparation of this attitude, the mindset of the disciples, what kind of mind that they should have as they go out to witness and to minister for Jesus, not to be, I don't want to say childish in their thinking, but simplistic in their thinking. He prepares them to say people as a whole are not going to receive your message. So you need to be wise and harden yourself against this resistance. Verse 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, but beware of men for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and Kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated, hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the son of man comes. Okay, now as we just said, Jesus prepares them for the attitude that they should have in their ministry, not despising people, but preparing them to be despised by people. So he tells them what he sends them out. They themselves are like sheep and they, the basically the idea religious leaders will be like wolves seeking their destruction. So he tells them to be wise, to be shrewd as serpents and yet harmless to be wise, wanting to do the good, but always aware of the evil. And at the same time, seeking to do no one any harm, harmless as dull. He emphasizes beware of men. And I like that too. Why? Because sooner or later, one case or another, they're going to hand you over the resistance to your message, resistance to the preaching about Jesus. Stir some to hate you so much that they will hand you over to the courts and, and you will be scourged 
even in the synagogue, brought before Gentile governors, brought before Gentile kings for Jesus' sake. But this will give them, the disciples, an opportunity even to proclaim the message of Jesus to these Gentile rulers. And he says, don't become anxious about what you're going to say thinking about, pondering about, what am I going to say when they bring me before the ruler, when they bring me before the king? Don't worry about that because when they do, the spirit of your father, which is simply the saying, the Holy Spirit will speak through you at that hour in what you ought to say. And sometimes, let me tell you what I've heard. I've heard a lot of times people saying they're called to preach or whatever. And before they preach, bring a sermon or bring a teaching, they don't really worry about sermon preparation. They don't worry about a lot of study and they misuse this verse saying that the Holy Spirit is going to uh, give them what to say. And you can tell indeed the Holy Spirit had given them what to say mm -mm, because of the quality of their teaching and preaching. No, what Jesus is saying here is for those who have been condemned into prison and when they have to bring out some justification, when they have to bring out a defense of themselves and stand before courts and rulers, then don't worry about the defense. God will defend them in their words by the presence of the working of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And that's what he's trying to say. He is not talking about sermon preparation or preaching as we consider doing this in our time. But anyway, then he continues to say how that their ministry and their preaching will be rejected and even how there will be some who will receive their words, others who will reject their word, and this will bring about great division, even division among family. Notice, brother will betray his own brother that will lead to his death. And here's what you have to understand. They are not uh, having sorrow because they betrayed their brother and their brother is being put to death by what they are doing. No, they are agreeing with it. This is, this is awful. Can you imagine your own brother is seeking your life because you are saying, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is what took place among the Jews of that day. And this even takes place in some way of Jews in our day. For when even Jews of our time believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah and they accept Jesus, they oftentimes find themselves ostracized from the Jewish community. They find themselves ostracized by their own family, even their own mother and fathers oftentimes disown them just because they believe in Jesus. But keeping with the text, father, his own child. Now, I'm not gonna even get into it, but just feel all of that. Your own child, you would always seek to protect your child, not turn your child over to the authorities. What, children rebel against their parents, rise up and seek to cause them, notice, causing them to be put to death. Amazing, the rejection how the message of Jesus causes division 
in the family. And even now, Jesus con concentrates on the disciples. You will be hated by men for my name's sake, right? But he, the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus simply is saying, this is a word of me to simply persevere. And in perseverance, you gain your life. In perseverance, you gain the fruit of your works. In perseverance, you gain eternal reward, not salvation. You're never saved by what you do, but you are commended and rewarded and blessed because you have persevered throughout all of this difficulty. So he simply says in the end, concerning the going from place to place to preach the gospel. So if they persecute you in one city, go to another. And if they, if they, uh, they make you, if you have to flee from one city to another because of the preaching of the gospel, simply do that. For I tell you the truth that this gospel concerning me being preached of me in the cities of Israel. And here's where he seems to speak uh, eschatological. That is, as Jesus began to look beyond his death on the cross to his return, unto his return, that you would not have preached throughout all the cities until the Son of Man should come. And so, and we understand this, and I'm not going to get into a lot of details about it, that it looks primarily to the book of Revelation and to uh, Revelation 11, I believe, concerning the two witnesses, as well as dealing with the 144,000 Jews, Revelation 6 and 7, who will be sealed to carry evangelistic works, not only in Israel, but throughout all the world. So Jesus looks beyond his time, beyond his ministry in the flesh, until the time of his second coming and that they are this, the word of Christ will, will still need to be preached. Okay. Now he continues on in verse number 24 in the relationship of the disciple and the master. That is simply to say as Jesus himself will suffer because he proclaims to be the Messiah. The disciples also must expect to suffer because they are declaiming, claiming Jesus to be the Messiah. 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more would they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetop. Do not fear those who killed the body, but, not, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, 
I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Now, let's deal with this. As we just said to you, comparing, preparing them that as Jesus himself is rejected by men, they also too shall be need to be prepared to be rejected by men. Don't be celebrated by everybody. Everybody ain't going to love you. So he begins to say disciple. The idiom that he's choosing is notice a disciple and a slave because that's what we are. A disciple, a learner from Jesus and a slave a slave to Jesus. Jesus is both our teacher and he is our master. He is the great slave holder. So he says, we as students and we as slaves, you can imagine to be above the teacher and the slave owner. It is still what? Enough. It is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing for us to be as our master. And so he prepares these disciples and even in us that if they call Jesus son of the devil or the devil himself, don't you know that they will call Jesus's servants even worse things, sons of the devil. <laughs> and then he simply says concerning them, because he's already told them how they're going to persecute them, how they're going to bring them before the courts how their ministry will be so divisive. He says, do not be afraid to testify about me. Do not be afraid to proclaim me because of fear of what they might do to you. Because what? Notice what he said. Don't be afraid because in the end, nothing that is concealed that will not ultimately be revealed and nothing that is hidden that will not ultimately be made known. That is the hearts, the secrets and the motives of all men, you, my disciples and, and even them, those who hear you. So therefore he says, Whatever I tell you in the darkness, that simply is the private teachings of Jesus with his disciples and whatever that is whispered in the ear. Again, the private teachings with his disciples. Do not be afraid to tell everybody. Proclaim this on the housetop. Openly preach the things that I have taught you in private. Don't be afraid how people will receive your word. Don't be afraid how people will respond to your word and don't be afraid of what they will do to you. And that once again is a preaching that we need to hear today. Preachers need to hear this today. As long as you are declaring the word of Jesus, as long as you are teaching rightly the truth of the scripture, don't give a so-and-so care to what people think. Don't be, give a so-and-so care to how people receive you. Don't give a so-and-so care if they get mad and if they don't want to give to you and if they don't want to give in the offering, if they don't want to support the church, don't give a care 
for whatever Jesus speaks to you through the word, Old and New Testament, rightly dividing the word of truth. Whatever Jesus speaks to you in your spirit and giving you understanding of the revelation of God, declare that openly unto all men and don't care what they say about you, don't care what they might even wanna do to you. Preach the word, as Paul says, be instant, in season, out of season, Preach it when they want to hear it. Preaching when they don't want to hear it. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Right preaching. People don't want to hear that, but they're going to find jackleg preachers who tell them what they want to hear. And what will they do? They will ultimately turn their ears away from the truth. So preach while you got a chance. Preach while they are in front of you. Preach while you got that audience and care not for their response. We do desire, we do desire people to hear the word, respond to the word and be saved. We do desire with humility to bring that word unto people. We do desire all of these things, but in the end, how they act and what they do is none of our business. That's God's business, and he alone will judge them as well as us in the judgment. So he simply says, don't fear those who are able to kill the body, and that's as far as they can go. A teaching for all of God's people, but specifically for them, but for all of God's people. They can only kill our bodies. They can do nothing to our eternal souls. They can't touch that. But if you should fear someone, Jesus commands them. He says, you fear God because he is not only able to kill your body. He is also able to give you eternal punishment in hell. That means he can go beyond the physical body. He can also touch your soul with punishment. And after all of that strength of preaching, he says, OK, fine, it's been rough. He says, but even though I've told you, don't care, don't worry about your well-being, leave it to God the Father. He does care. Don't ever think God didn't care about his people. Don't ever think God didn't care about his preachers, his true, true preachers, because everybody who say they're a preacher ain't a preacher, his true evangelist. He truly cares for us. And notice the comparison. He said, look at this. Look at the sparrows. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? That means the smallest amount of money that you can give. And two of them. <laughs> and he says, nevertheless, even they don't fall to the earth without your father's knowledge. That is, God even cares about the cheapest birds. And nevertheless, if he cares about birds, of insignificance. What do you think about you? He begins to say, even the hair on your head. I'm rubbing my head and don't even have hair. <laughs> but I got hair elsewhere. <laughs> even the very hairs on your head are numbered. God's love, care, and concern for his people. He even knows, he knows what you don't know the number of hairs on your head. That's how intimate God's knowledge and concern is for his people. The very hairs of your head are numbered. So therefore, whatever you are going through, 
It must be the will of God that you are going through. Don't think that when you are being persecuted that God does not care what I'm going through. He does care. It is simply his will as we will see out throughout all of the gospel as Jesus himself will continue to say, not my will, but thou will be done. And the ultimate will of God was for Jesus to die. And notice that's the same context that we have here that don't fear them who can even kill you because if they kill you, it's not that God does not care about you. It is because it is the will of God, your father, and truly he cares about you. So he says concerning that, the instance of not being afraid, he says, confess me openly to all men, proclaim me openly to all men. And if you do not proclaim and confess me openly, neither will I proclaim and confess you before the father. Now that is, that's a detrimental thing there because if there is one thing that we want Jesus to do is declare us before the father. I want Jesus to say concerning me before God, the father, I know you. The last thing I would ever want Jesus to say to me before the father, the angels of God, the congregation in heaven, and we ain't going to even be in heaven at that time. I never knew you. So we want God, Jesus to take ownership. Jesus says, take public ownership of me. And I, in the time that it matters the most, will take public ownership of you. 34. So now Jesus talks about the very nature of their preaching, the rightful understanding of their preaching, how they should understand the preaching of Jesus will affect others and not to get any misunderstanding of what the preaching of Jesus will be. Again, as even I said, don't think just because you preach Jesus, people are going to love you. If everybody is loving you, then you ain't preaching Jesus. You are done. You have done something wrong. Jesus says, if all men love you, then something is wrong. Something is wrong. But the world would not love you because the world only loves its own. So let's just get into it. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. But he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Let me talk about this beautiful section. So Jesus gives them clarity about the gospel that they're preaching and concerning those who hear that message. 
He says, don't confuse yourself about the preaching of Jesus. Don't confuse yourself that you're going to bring peace to the world. This is not the time to bring the peace to the world. By the preaching of me, it will bring division. So notice, and the tool of that cutting division is a sword. So the preaching of Jesus brings about a sword. Why? Because he brings a sword. He sets at variance what? A man over against a son, over against his own father. One believes in Jesus, one does not. And this causes division in their relationship. This causes hardship in their relationship. They cannot relate to one another like they used to because now one believes in Jesus, the daughter against her mother-in-law. One believes in Jesus, daughter-in-law. It's all the same. When you come to Jesus, when the Lord saves you and you put your faith, your trust in Jesus, you want to live a life that's pleasing to Jesus and you do just what Jesus says, proclaim him openly before everybody. That includes your family. That includes your family. And let them know that you're a believer in Jesus from your unsaved family members, from those who don't believe in Jesus, this will cause division. They may tolerate you. They may tolerate you, but the relationship that you once enjoyed with them, you will not enjoy anymore because why? Now, let me say like people used to say, wrongfully say, talking about the reason why you're saved, this ain't why you saved, but this is why relationships suffer between you, believer in Jesus, and the unsaved. The relationship suffers. Why? Between father, son, mother, daughter, daughter. Because the things you used to do, you don't do no more. Places you used to go, you don't go no more. The drinking you used to do with them, you don't drink. And all of the foolish and nasty immoral jokes, you don't laugh at them anymore. But Jesus now is more important to you than anything. And so this causes you to be an outsider to your family. But even in the Jewish context that we've given, Jesus has already told them that they will be betrayed by their own family members. And so he warns them even of the closest relationship. And this gets on, okay, it gets on my nerve. It gets on my nerve. People want to tone it down. Well, that's my mama and that's my daddy and I don't want to upset them or that's my child and I don't want to say things that you know cause trouble because I'm saved and I know my children ain't saved and so I don't want to, you know, do all this Jesus stuff because that brings a problem uh, between me and my family. So I'm going to kind of keep it low key. Now, Jesus told me, keep it high key. That's what Jesus told me. Things that I proclaim to you in the darkness, things that I tell you in the secret, proclaim on the rooftop. And if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Bring it out publicly. But now you, when it comes to your family, you want to low-key Jesus. And let me tell you what Jesus said about you who low-key him before your family. He who, do, he who loves father or mother more than me, you ain't worthy. He who loves son or daughter, and some of you fit this bill more than me, you 
ain't worthy of Jesus. Notice, never put your family before Jesus. I don't care if it's my son or my daughter. I love my Lord more than all, more than greater. Notice what the commandment is. Notice what this commandment is. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, as Jesus would proclaim it. Love the Lord. Love who? The Lord, even Jesus. All your heart, all your strength, all your might with everything in you. And I said that, notice, he ain't never told you to love your mother or your father or your son and daughter, your sister. Your God ain't never, ever told you to love any person, any human being with all that you got. He said, there's only one somebody you love with everything you got, and that is God himself. And notice what Jesus said, love me. Because if you put anybody in front of me, don't make no, and notice the whole context of all of this, whole context of all of chapter 10, witnessing, proclaiming openly, publicly, Jesus. Our children are secondary. Our parents are secondary. We love them. But when it comes to Jesus, they don't, they mean nothing. They mean nothing. Jesus must be first. So then he begins to say, he who does not take up his cross and follow me. The very idea of cross is you are bearing a cross just like Jesus did on your way to be put to death. So Jesus is talking about the instance or the idea of willing, because you are bearing your own cross, the willingness to suffer for me. Jesus saying, you are willing to suffer for me. And you ask the question, Lord Jesus, to what extent, how much should I be willing to suffer for you? Jesus said, to death. Even if it means that you die, because you hold to me and my name, because you proclaim to me, never deny me, never deny me. If somebody puts a gun to your head and say, deny Jesus or we will kill you, then we say, it's time for me to die. This is my appointed time. Hebrews 9 and 27, it is appointed unto a man once to die. God has appointed this time and this manner for my death. And I am going to glorify Jesus by dying for my Lord at this manner. But I promise you, I will not by the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. I will never deny my Lord. Jesus will always give you strength. He'll give you strength and he'll even give you peace. At the moment of your death, if you don't believe me, ask Paul, ask Paul in 2 Timothy when he says, my time is at hand. I fought a good, a good fight. I finished the course. I've done the path that God has laid before me. I have walked the path and therefore I'm, I'm relieved. I'm relieved God got a crown waiting on me. Or as Paul said in the book of Philippians, I don't know whether to choose to continue to stay with you ministering on this earth or whether to go to die and to be with Christ 
for to die and be with Christ is so much better. He'll give you peace at the end of your journey because you will hear him saying like he said unto Stephen when Stephen was in the midst of being stoned. What did Stephen say? He looked into the heaven. He could say, I can see the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And notice Jesus is always seated at the right hand of God. Stephen said he was standing. Why was Jesus standing? Because he was welcoming Stephen home. He was telling Stephen, well done. Now, son, you can come home. You publicly announced me. You publicly spoke of me to all of these unbelieving Pharisees. You did just what I told you to do. Well done. I am saying unto the father, welcome Stephen home. Now, that's a blessing, but you got to be willing to suffer. And then he says, he who finds his life will lose it. What does Jesus mean? If in this life you pursue the things that you want to do. Yeah, I know your job is important. Yeah, I know that. I know that you got a family to feed. Yeah, I know that you've decided to do this. You decided to do that. You decided to do that. The bottom line is you decided to live your life for yourself. The whole point is when a person comes to Christ, we no longer are alive unto ourselves. We have died to ourselves and now we are alive in Christ alone and we live our lives to the glory of Jesus alone. Our pursuit in life, our, hear me, our pursuit in life is not silver and gold. It's not having reputation among men is not building up huge bank accounts and laying away money for retirement and for a rainy day. All oh, this man, our pursuit in life is not seeking the respectability, notability among men. That's junk. Our pursuit in life is the pleasure of Jesus. Our pursuit in life is that no matter Whatever happens in this life, we live it for Jesus so that, so that one day, one day when we stand before Jesus, we can hear him say these beautiful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we live for. So notice, but to the person who finds his life, you ain't living for Jesus. You ain't living for that. You will lose your life. In other words, to hell you go. To hell you go because you didn't live it for Jesus. But then he says on the contrary side, but to those who lose their lives for my sake, I'm living for Jesus. It's a song that's beginning to ring in my mind. I think it's John P. Key. Jesus will welcome me home. I'm living this life just to live again. And, and what is it? And somehow I know that I will win and whatever. Jesus will welcome me home. If you lose your life for Jesus sake, you actually just found what? Eternal life. You just found true life. Now let's get us the final section and then we're going to wrap it up. And now he deals with the reward. Okay. To those who respond to these 12 disciples and to their message of Jesus, the people of Israel who respond. This also principally 
It's the same for our day. The principles remain the same. It's no different. What happens when a person preaches, teaches, proclaims the gospel of Jesus, teaches the word of God? What happens when the people who hear that word respond favorably to that word? They believe that word and they begin to want to live by that word. They receive Jesus and say, the word that you preach, good, I'm going to live by that word. How people respond. What is their reward? 40. He who receives you receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in, in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And who, whoever in the name of a disciple gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So he begins to say, by receiving me, you're simply, see, that's what they're preaching, Jesus. You receive Jesus. It's not just simply Jesus. It is ultimately God the Father. Because what? It is God the Father who has sent Jesus. And then he styles his ones whom he is sending and those whom he sends. He styles them in three categories. Prophet, a righteous man, and a disciple. And so he simply says, to receive a prophet, one who receives revelation from God, revelation from the Holy Spirit. If you receive him and his word to hear and obey in receiving the prophet, that is, you're receiving the prophet gladly. You're treating the prophet in a good way, as he just said earlier. Notice, stay in the context. What? When you go out, don't worry about providing for yourself. Don't take money back. Don't take this. So if they are receiving you, they're going to provide for you because they have received the word that you have spoken. So what for these people? He says they have a reward. God himself will give them a reward that no man can give them. And let me tell you something. Uh, boy, why are these songs in my head? Can't nobody do me like Jesus and can't nobody do you like Jesus. Can't nobody give unto you like Jesus. Jesus can give to you in places where can't nobody give money. It goes beyond money. Things in this world to help you survive, it goes beyond things in this world to help you provide. It goes even to the watching of your children. Your children who ain't bit more saved than a cat. And you on your knees saying to God, Lord, save my children. And even if my children ain't saved, Lord, be merciful to my children. Lord, watch over my children. Every day you hear on the news some people shot, killed, dying of drug overdoses. And our children, same thing. No different than the world. They out there too doing the same thing, running the streets, running the women, running the men all times of the night. They can be in car accidents just like everybody else. Let me tell you something. Can't nobody do you like Jesus. Because I hear God saying unto Solomon, 
for your father David's sake. Solomon, I ought to kick your rump. That's what I ought to do. But I'm thinking about David. He loved me. His heart was tender to me. And because of him, I'm not going to bring extreme judgment on you. Don't you know God says the same? Can't nobody do you like Jesus. He look at your no good child who ain't bit more say cussing, drinking, smoking all the dope. And he'll say, because of your father, because of your mother, I'll have mercy on you. You out there running these streets, driving these cars. I can kill you. I can let death catch you just like it catches everybody else. But listen to God. But because of your mother, because of your mother, the reward given to those who are good, to the preacher, to the prophet, to the righteous man, to the disciples. Notice, a righteous man receives the righteous man's reward, the reward that is due to a person who is good, to a righteous, even to a disciple. If you, notice, how small a thing can you do for God's people? Let me simply say it in our day, for the preacher, he said, even if you give them something as, as little as a cup of cold water. Notice, I said, gotcha. For even if you give them a cup of cold water, God in heaven says, I just put that down. I owe you. Isn't that amazing? It's a sense as you put God into your debt and God is obligated to repay you when you are good to the ministers of God, to the preacher, to the one who proclaims and teaches the word of God. All right, guys, thank you for joining me with that. I know as a preacher of God, it might seem a little self-serving, but indeed it was not because I remember what Jesus said. Remember he said this, when you go to a person's house, and you stay with them a week and they're providing for you, he says, don't go from house to house. Don't feel like you are inconveniencing them. All the things that they give unto you, the servant is worthy of these things. So I don't even feel bad about it because, oh, I'm not gonna rehash all of it. So I'll even say, remember the words of Jesus. And if this, ministry. If my teachings and preachings have been good for you and helpful for you, remember what Jesus himself is saying even here, because the ministry does have need of support. And I'm not going to go through all of those things, but I encourage you to bless the Lord. And even as Jesus said, you receive the reward of the prophet of the righteous man or even of the disciple. You place God in your debt. And remember, can't nobody repay you like Jesus. So thanks for joining me in all of that. Join me for next time when we get into chapter 11. And as we move into chapter 11 in Matthew, we're starting now to go to the time to where John is going to be killed and Jesus is going to give a tribute to John. Anyway, Thanks for joining me, guys. See you next time.